Good evening and welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater. Tonight we're going to be visiting a memory of a time of war. This is a black and white film and it's from the mid-60s and uh, there might be a familiar star of television fame in there. So if you will, please just uh, mind the uh, the aisles and, uh, well, find your seats because the show is about to begin. Good evening. It's the beginning of March. Do you think we're going in like a lamb, Toppy, or do you think we're coming in like a lion? Well, if today describes it, uh, we're we're coming in like a lamb. Uh, yeah, I, I I'd say that's fair. Um, I mean, it was uh, well. I don't know. I mean, you're you're a, you're an apple country. Mm-hmm. You know, we're slightly different apart. Uh, you're slightly north of me, but today was a kind of mildish, sunny day here. All I can say is I'm glad that we did not get what uh, the the weather people thought we had in store because they were proclaiming the finger of God was going to come down upon us. <laughs> uh, I I took note of that. Uh, yeah, I, we escaped something somehow. We we got a, a a mild dusting out here, not quite apple country, but anyways, it's March first, and you know, Toppy, we don't often get to do this. Because we usually have some form of a holiday or an occasion. But I thought we would uh, reminisce a little bit about history, about what things in the past have happened on March 1st. So um, I'll save the best for last. Uh, Let's see here. Now, in 1936, after five years of construction, the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. Yes, I, I used to live in Colorado. Uh, the Colorado River runs actually uh, southwest through the state. And, uh, well, some people want to try to keep the water from leaving the state because, you know, huh? it's, a water, it's a drinking source. Anyways, uh, the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River at the Arizona-Nevada border was completed in 1936. And it is the highest concrete arch dam in the United States. Damn. Yeah, I've not been, but, you know, there's plenty of jokes in there of tours and things. Um, (laughs) See Chevy Chase's uh, career. Uh, And in 1961, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, uh, I think he was still even the uh, to this day the youngest president, but uh, he established the Peace Corps in 1961 and... I feel that I, for one, is are someone that have indirectly benefited from that because some of my favorite teachers in my uh, youth experience were those who actually had um, um, participated in service with the Peace Corps. So, okay. And then, uh, lastly, something quite interesting, Toppy. Now, I'm not sure if you knew this, but the uh, outdoor scenes. Uh, the location that they filmed tonight's movie in were in a national park. In fact, if you are viewing us on YouTube, you can see the majesty that I am amidst in Yellowstone National Park. 
And yeah. on this date of March 1st, in 1872, U.S. Congress established Yellowstone as the country's first national park. That's right. And uh, it's a super volcano. <laughs> Oh, wait, waiting to go off and destroy <laughs> us all at any moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, part of tonight's film does involve conspiracies, and I know how much you love a good well, <laughs> disaster. Well, I've just, I've just always Yellowstone has always been on my mind as 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 just an imminent. It's a super goddamn volcano, and. <laughs> And it seriously could go off. And anyways, if it does, it'll be the end of everything uh, in the United States and possibly the world. But uh, let's uh, go to more more pleasant thoughts. Oh, certainly. Uh, DJ, I did not know, frankly, mm-hmm. that this movie had locations in Yellowstone, except then I. I I remembered the ending where there's a, a bit of a chase, a bit of a of an escape, you could say. Mm-hmm. And then I re- I realized that's that's where they used Yellowstone. You know, and um, part of the the beauty, the majesty of na- places like national parks is there's a lot of uh, well people watching and just fun to be had, and you know people go camping there and they have picnics. Yeah. Now, I hear tell that uh, Miss Gertie had a school trip to Yellowstone once, and I do hear that she had quite the crush on the leading man in tonight's film. Uh, Miss Gertie, uh, explain, please, is there any truth to the rumor that you were the, uh, the president of James Garner's fan club, or at least in your small town? Hey, listen, I'm not embarrassed to say I loved that guy. I mean, who could be cuter? Really? And I'm telling you, I I just happened to be a cook out in a canteen on Yellowstone at that particular time. That's how we met. And I was an instant fan, and it's possible we had relations, but I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> anyways, DJ... He's a lovey-dovey, I'll tell you that. Oh, well, I'm sure that you would love to be nostalgic for the rest of the evening. So could you go downstairs for us and oh. let the folks know what we're uh, discussing tonight? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, it's a pleasure tonight. I'll, I'll be, I'll go, I'm going right now, right now. <laughs> there she goes. Oh, okay, here we go, folks. Major Jefferson Pike is en route to Portugal to confirm suspicions the Nazis have been successfully decoyed on plans to end the war in Europe. Shortly after arrival, he's abducted and comes to at an army hospital somewhere within a liberated Germany. When he looks in the mirror, he's years older, or so he thinks. Has the Major had a traumatic experience? Is his mind playing tricks on him? Is the young attending nurse his bride? Or is he just a pawn in this game? Get your reading glasses and your passport. We're going to Europe 
It's time for 36 Hours with James Garner and Eva Marie Saint. Take it away, fellas! What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your hosts, DJ and Toppy. Let me insert the applause when I get my arrow over to that part of the screen. I was bad and I put a picture in the chat room. But it wasn't a bad picture. It's just the leading man from tonight. And, you know, that's part of the experience. If you come over to matinemanusha.com, you could be in our chat room on Discord where we share photos of the cast members and uh, other hilarious moments there. Uh, that's, that's right, because we do this live, don't we? We do. So, Toppy, this is a film that we're talking about tonight, and uh, it's from the mid-60s. And as uh, you heard Miss Gertie talk, um, talking about, it's from leading man there, Mr. James Garner, who uh, was in many things later on there. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, what else do we do usually to, to set the tone, sir? Well, I, I'd like you to tell us just a few things of uh, what was going on and. Uh, our uh, history, yeah, around about 1964, why not? Hey, U.S. history in 1964. U.S. Surgeon General Luther Leonidas, say that three times fast, Terry, reports that smoking may be hazardous to one's health. Oops. The first such statement from the U.S. government at the time... John Glenn announced that he will seek the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senator from Ohio. He was spaced out, man. (laughs) And the Beatles, you know, those guys who needed a haircut from England. My pants. Yeah, uh, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in 64, marking their first live performance on American television. And it was seen by an estimated 73 million, with an M, uh, like um, M&M candies, million viewers. Yeah, well, th- that was uh, a lot of viewers tuning in for that. But, 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 but that, that's when, when there were three, you know, networks. Um, you, the Nielsen's... It's a total different thing. Like a successful, a really successful television show had millions of of hits, uh, as we'd call them today. Now, you know, um, with cable and streaming, uh, you don't have to have even a fraction of that audience to be successful, which mm-hmm. is just an, just a very odd development. In uh, programming history. Well, let me talk about some celebrity boys. Uh, we've got Na- uh, Nicholas Cage. He was that actor in the National Treasure series of films, and and I think we can all agree Nicholas Cage is a national treasure. <laughs> uh, then we've got Michelle Obama, former first lady. Ah, oh, she's so lovely. Uh, we got Matt Dillon. Uh, an actor uh, that I remember most from There's Something About Mary. 
Uh, we got your Wanda Sykes. Uh, she's a comedian and an actress. Uh, she was in Monster-in-Law and Evan Almighty. Uh, we got your Courtney Love, who is a musician and uh, forever will be known as the widow of Kurt Cobain. I don't know if that's good or a curse. Anyways, we also got your Bobby Flay. TJ, where did you find Bobby Flay? Bobby Flay is a chef and restaurateur, don't you know? There you go. And he, you know, he has that show about uh, basically, can you do it better than him? It's called Throwdown, I believe. Oh, he is on a TV show. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, and he's a star of uh, like the Food Network, so you know. Oh, okay. There, there's a lot of people who think they can cook because they've watched him. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> well, our movie tonight came out in '64. DJ, tell us if you will. What was competing with it in the theaters uh, when it was coming out? All righty. So 36 hours. That's not how long it takes to watch. That's not even how long it took to make. But let's <laughs> end her here because I don't know off the top of my head when this film was released. So let's see here. OK, it looks like it came out just after Valentine's Day in February of 65 so it was the beginning of the year it wasn't even the spring it had no chance because everybody knows the big successful times of year are the holidays and summer so you know who is going to go see a movie about uh, a potential uh, war refugee uh, around valentine's day anyways um they didn't really keep numbers. Wait a minute, DJ. Is this your way of telling us this was a very low-rated movie? Well, um... As we but, often do here. Perhaps. Well, I'll try to save this by saying we don't really have a lot of box office numbers from before the 70s. It wasn't as important a thing then. But the other films that were out in theaters in 64... Uh, included the um, the headliner with Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, Mary Poppins. Oh, that brought in a hundred and two million in 1964 money, and uh, shortly thereafter, right up number two was a film that Julie Andrews turned down in favor of Mary Poppins. And, uh, ironically, she actually starred in the stage version of My Fair Lady, but the film, which came in number two that year, brought in $72 million and is one of the most remembered films with Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison. Okay. Now, number three in the box office was a installment in the James Bond 007 series. And of course, in 64, this was with Sean Connery. Gold Gold fingering. Ah. Fingering your... Oh, uh, yes. Uh, by the way, all these movies were in color. And our movie tonight, well, I mean, this was still a choice. Mm. Believe it or not, back then in 64, uh, should we do it in black and white or should we do it in color? And 
the particular producers of this movie said, well, black and white is cheaper. <laughs> and so it was done in black and white. In fact, this this movie belongs in black and white, I think. It's perfect for the genre. And well, it certainly uh, helps disguise Yellowstone National Park as perhaps the uh, the wilderness of Germany. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you're right. Well, let me talk about the director and the writer of this movie. I really like this guy. His name is George Seaton. He was born in 1911. He passed away in 79. I, I just think this guy is not so crazy for all the things he did. And he's really well respected in the industry. Uh, he was an American screenwriter, a playwright, a film producer, a film director, and he directed theater. Um, and he won two Academy Awards for his writing. He won an Academy Award for a screenplay for the perennial favorite. From 1947, Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, he wrote that damn thing. And he won an Oscar for his screenplay for the 1954 movie, The Country Girl, which starred Grace Kelly. And actually, she won an Oscar for the best actress in that movie. So two, count two Oscars. Uh, and uh, he was born in South Bend, Indiana, but he grew up in a Detroit Jewish neighborhood. And he eventually attended the Exeter Academy, which is one of the oldest secondary schools in the United States, uh, for his education. And everybody... Uh, Thought and his family thought, and he thought even that he was going to go to Yale because that's what he was meant to do, and he had the grades to do it. But, well, as often happens in the lives of these artiste types, uh, at the last minute they changed their mind. And instead of going to Yale, he auditioned for Jesse Bonstell's drama school. Right there in Detroit, and where Bonstell hired him for her stock company at $15 a week, and he became an actor. Yeah, and uh, so he started work in stock theater, and he also, in Detroit, on radio station WXYZ, how about that, radio station WXYZ, uh, he played, uh, he was an actor on the Lone Ranger radio series, which uh, w goes way back to 1933. This is way before Clayton Moore was ever involved in it. You know, he's the guy that was in the TV series and also on the radio uh, before that. But this is way before Clayton Moore. And there was some other guy named, by the name of John L. Barrett who played the Lone Ranger uh, on the series. Uh, but uh, quite quickly, he was replaced by our man G George here, George Seaton. And he played the Lone Ranger on this radio show, which I just think is crazy. In fact, get this. 
George George Seaton claims that he's the guy that devised the cry "Hiyo summer" because the script called for him to whistle for his horse, and he couldn't whistle. <laughs> So he came up with Io Silver to call a source instead. And of course, Io Silver went on to become, you know, the catchphrase or something that um, was very much associated. But this is just why I like this guy so much. He was in so many different things. In fact, you you could never pin him down to a genre because he did comedy. He did serious things he actually did quite a few war movies like our movie tonight um but you 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 can't put this guy down uh to any particular genre um let me just uh, buzz over uh some some movies (laughs) okay first of all this is crazy too he wrote at least part of if not a significant portion of the the day the a day at the races with the Marx Brothers, okay, is that crazy or not? Uh, he did uh, Apartment for Peggy, which is this really cute movie he did right after Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street um, with Marino O'Hara and John Payne. Um, Chicken every Sunday in '49, for heaven's sake in 1950. Little Boy Lost in 53. The Country Girl, as I said before, in 54, he run the Academy Award for that screenplay. Uh, Sheepers, he goes on and on here. Uh, But let's go right up to what is probably his biggest movie ever that he wrote and directed. You won't believe what it is, DJ. Hmm. It, It was Airport. In 1970. That's why I say you can't pin this guy down to a genre. Anyways, I think maybe his most important contribution to the industry was not his movies, was not his scripts. But he um, he was a leadership, uh, a leader, rather, in the industry. Because he served as president of the Writers Guild of America from 48 to 49. In 55, he was elected president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. He served three t- terms. Uh, he was um, he, he directed the 28th Academy Awards on television. At any rate, what I'm saying is he really was a guide for everyone in the industry and and even more than than all of his director and, and writing and things i think that's that that's what he's really well known for was just being a stand up leader in the motion picture industry so that's our guy tonight uh yeah george seaton all right so um as we all know there take there takes a boatload of talent to put together something like a film, a movie, like 36 hours that we're discussing tonight. And uh, as you just heard about the director, George Seaton, now I'm going to talk to you about our leading man in tonight's feature. This is Mr. James Garner, who a lot of you will recall from uh, more recent years. Well, not so recent, but maybe... Uh, 
you know, when you were in school and came home and there was in reruns, shows like The Rockford Files and Maverick, James Gardner uh, played Major Jefferson Pike. And uh, James Gardner was born James Scott Bumgarner in Norman, Oklahoma. So, you know, corn and wheat country there. He dropped out of high school at 16 to join the Merchant Marines. And he worked in a variety of jobs, received two Purple Hearts when he was wounded twice during the Korean War. He had his first chance to act when a friend got him in a non-speaking role in the Broadway stage play The Kane Mutiny Court Martial in 54. Part of his work was to read lines to the lead actors, and he began to learn the craft of acting. This play led to small television roles, television commercials, and eventually a contract with Warner Brothers. Before he'd be cast in his first television series, which was Maverick, which ran from 57 to 62, Garner would appear in four films, including The Girl He Left Behind, which is a film in 56 with Tab Hunter. Ooh, and Natalie Wood. So, you know, a little something for everyone in that one. And in Maverick, James Garner was cast opposite Jack Kelly, who was the star of a then-recent film and a favorite of mine, Forbidden Planet. Now, the TV series was originally supposed to feature Garner as an alternate, but the show quickly shifted to focus on his character, Brett. So he stole the show. As Maverick, Garner was cool, good-natured, likable, and always ready to use his wits to get him in or out of trouble. The series was highly successful, and Garner continued into continued in it into the 1960, when he left the series in a dispute over money. Thirty Six Hours was Garner's fifteenth film. He, he was all of thirty six at the time, and his film prior was the Americanization of Emily, which is stated to be one of his favorites in sixty three, which he starred in with Julie Andrews. It was about an American naval officer's talent for living the good life in wartime. In challenge is challenged when he falls in love and is sent on a dangerous mission. His film after in '65 was with Dick Van Dyke and Angie Dickinson. Yes, the model turned actress and star of reality TV in more recent years. The Art of Love in 65. It's about a struggling artist fakes his own death so his works will increase with value. So he was uh, the star of Maverick and then later on uh, the Rockford Files in the 70s. On TV, yep. Yes, sir. And then, of course, Another film that he starred in in later years of his career, in the 90s, he was in a little film that we've discussed right here on Matinee Munisha a few years ago. He starred with Jack Lemmon and Dan Aykroyd in a film called My Fellow Americans, and that's one of my personal favorites. Now, yeah. you may also notice in the chat room that we've posted some pictures, including one of Mr. Garner, later on in his career. Now, uh, 
at the time in the late 90s, John Ritter was part of a sitcom called Eight Simple Rules, which was shortened from Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Daughter. And as many of you know, uh, we lost John Ritter at a young age. He actually passed during the making of the series. And um, rather than cancel the series, they rescued it. They brought in Katie Seagal and... James Garner played the grandfather who moved in when the head of the household played by John Ritter passed away. So one might say that he and Katie Seagal rescued that show. Mm, so, okay. Um, but yes, that is Mr. James Garner. And, I, I think, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, if, were you going to say something about the show? I, 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 just want, I just wanted to add about uh, Mr. Garner is that I admire him because he he started in movies like like our movie tonight in 64 um and then went to television maybe at a time when television was still a bit like oh you're doing television not movies like me <laughs> um and then followed Maverick up a short time later with the Rockford Files and uh, both of them were good, long, solid ones. But he went back to movies mm. and was very successful. And one of my very favorites is Victor Victoria. Oh, yes. With Julie uh, Andrews again. Yeah. And uh, so one, he was, you know, just so wonderful in that. Uh, Murphy's Romance is another I, that I just feel like, wow, he was he was just so good. He was just seemed... Kind of like um, Spencer Tracy. He, he never seemed to be acting. He just seemed to be a natural. Uh, I always admired him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, he did the uh, uh, beef industries commercials for all-American beef. Uh, and, of course, then he had a massive heart attack. But, no, that's a, a different story. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, and then, of course, he uh, he had a series before that of commercials where he was uh, sort of the spokesperson for Polaroid. And uh, he and his co-star oh my God, in those commercials right. had such on-screen chemistry that people would often mistake her as his real life wife. What, what, what was her name? What was her name? What was her name? She oh. was on Star Trek, for God's sake. She she won an Emmy for being on The Incredible Hulk. We will have to find that out before Damn the show. Someone out. in the chat one, room. one of you will find out. But this actress is uh, apparently known to have had a T-shirt made up because so many people mistook her as James Garner's wife because of yeah, those yeah. commercials. And it said, no, I'm not James Garner's wife. Yeah. James Garner's wife. <laughs> uh, the way those commercials worked was that you would never see them. You would never see the actors. You would hear their voices mm-hmm. and you would see their hands. And I don't know. It was just a thing that went on. I don't know for a good five years or more. Oh. Uh, what, what did they advertise? It was Polaroid. Polaroid, right, 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 right. Okay. So well, let's, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll have it be a chat. Marion Hartley. Okay. Just identified her, Marion Hartley, of course. Uh, so we are at about the halfway mark in the show. 
We're going to step on over here to our refreshment stand. Miss Gertie is swirling, swir- swirling yeah. over her autograph photo collection. Yeah, everybody's on their own because uh, I'm off. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just tonight, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> All righty, folks. So for your listening enjoyment, we have a snippet of a interview with Mr. James Garner in the later years of his career on PBS's Charlie Rose. And he talks about uh, working as an actor uh, and uh, his favorite directors and a little bit about, um, well, uh, a a tiff that went on between a co-star. Perhaps you've heard of a Mr. Steve McQueen. Here we go. James Garner is here for more than 50 years. He has remained one of America's most recognizable and respected actors. He began his career in 1954, appearing opposite Henry Fonda on Broadway. In 1956, he became a contract player for Warner Brothers. What followed was a career in television that included roles in the classic series Maverick and the Rockford Files, and a film career that includes such movies as The Great Escape, Marlowe, and his Academy Award-nominated performance in Murphy's Romance. I am pleased to have James Garnett at this table for the first time, but not the first time we did a conversation. What do you want from a director? What I want from a director is uh, not a pat on the back, but just to know that my direction uh, is that I'm going in is right. Mm. Just give me assurance that this is what mm. we should do and, and mm. we're right. Confirm that we're on the same page. Right. Right. Just... Let me know that we're going in the right direction. I don't like to go in there and not be sure. <clears throat> I remember I did a picture with uh, for George Seaton called uh, 36 Hours yeah. years ago. And I remember going down the freeway in the morning and I'm rehearsing my dialogue in my mind as I'm driving and what I want to do and I'm going to do it this way, this way, this way. So got in there and we did the scene that day, very difficult scene. And I'm driving home that night, and I'm on the freeway, and I'm going through the dialogue again. You know, it's still in my mind. And I said, oh, I didn't do one thing the way I wanted to. He changed it from the first line on. Everything was totally different, and I never knew it. <laughs> I didn't realize it until I'm going home that he had changed everything. Yeah. And that's a good director. Take a look at this. Said to be the one film that you still watch on television. What is it? It's said to be The Great Escape. Uh, tell me why you like The Great Escape. John Sturges was the director. John always, in his movies, had a plan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he took all these different characters, and they're coming from different directions to one central thing. You, you look at Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Same thing. You've got this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. Got, but they're they, all yeah. in one, you know, to one purpose. And John w- was a, a great director and editor. And uh, uh, he, he, he got the most out of, of, of his actors, and I don't know how he did that. I think it was just pat on the back and, and that sort of thing to keep your, your confidence going. But, you know, McQueen was out of that picture in the middle of it. Why? John showed about an hour and a half of dailies. <laughs> yes. And Steve didn't like what he was doing. So he wanted to reshoot it all. Well, of course, they couldn't reshoot it all. You know, it's just too much, too expensive. But Steve was a little, he, was, Steve he, was a little out of hand, <laughs> always. And, uh, and, and, and so, that, that, in part, was his appeal, it seems like. I knew he was unhappy when he came out of the uh, 
the dailies, and uh, I didn't think anything about it. And the next day, the following day after that, Sturgis called and said, Jim, you're the star of the picture. McQueen's out. Okay, we're back. So, another uh, member of the cast, and, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're not quite sure you know what's going on with the story, this is a film about uh, a, uh, a military person, a U.S. military person during World War II who gets abducted basically when he's been told the plan for invasion. And, uh, well, he wakes up in this, uh, you know, uh, uh, army hospital. And uh, who should be there when he wakes up but this pretty young thing who, uh, you know, looks just like the locals and... uh, that's the next member of our cast we're going to talk about. Toppy, tell us about the the leading lady, if you will. Her name is Eva Marie Saint. And talk about someone who entered the movies with a splash. By God, this is one of them ladies. First of all, her career has been um, in theater, film, radio, and television. Her career spans 75 years or more. She's won an Academy Award. She's uh, gotten a Primetime Emmy Award. She's been nominated umpteen time for Golden Globe Awards. She's been uh, uh, just... She's one uh, of the oldest living and earliest surviving Academy Award winners and one of the last surviving stars from the golden age of Hollywood cinema. She's kind of a class act, but that movie that made her career and won her an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, her first movie, by the way, Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront, 1954, opposite Marlon Brando. Mm. Can you can you start out better than that? <laughs> well, uh, the rest of the 50s, she went on to do a variety of roles. She was in Rain Tree Country, a ridiculous comedy with Bob Hope. She was opposite uh, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor in A Hatful of Rain. Uh, she went. Uh, she was nominated for Golden Globe Award um, for uh, her work in that movie, Hatful of Rain. Uh, but the movie I'll always associate her with and always love is her 1959 role in North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock, where she appeared opposite Cary Grant. And they climbed all around the noses and nostrils of the presidents that were carved into that mountain. (laughs) 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 So in the 60s, she went on to just be in amazing movies. Exodus uh, with Paul Newman. The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, a comedy with Carl Reiner and Alan Arkin. Uh, She was in uh, so many others. She was in uh, Grand Prix uh, with um, 
uh, which was directed by John Frankenheimer in 66. Um, when it came to TV, she was uh, uh, won an Emmy Award for being in some of the Philco Television Playhouse productions. Uh, those are from 1954, 55. It's way early in the, the television uh you know th- those were live productions um she was in how the Ta- how the west was won uh, we're, we're already up to 1977 here and um let's see she was in oh can you believe this she was in goddamn superman returns <laughs> in 2006 um, well, she was born in New Jersey. Um, she um, studied acting at Bowling Green State University. And um, that's when she was did some of her first stage roles. Um, and she was um, in a production of Personal Appearance. Um, by the way, a theater on Bowling Green's campus is named after her. Um, uh, as I say, she was uh, on very early uh, television productions. One is The Trip to Bountiful, um, which is the first uh, version that was produced of the Horton Foot play. Um, and she starred with uh, Lillian Gish, of all people, and Joe Van Fleet. By the way, Trip to Bonifol was eventually made into a movie with What's-Her-Face, the actress that could put her whole hand into her mouth. Oh. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I can't. All of a sudden, her name's escaping me. But she she was in my favorite uh, Christmas movie uh, of a... Um, um, oh, my God. All the names are leaving me. Anyway, Anyways... Uh, we'll 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 stick with we'll stick with Eva Marie Saint. Um, but just just suffice it to say, she had a really long career, and she was in many notable notable movies, and she was kind of classy. And then she had a very long gap in her career. Why? Because she just wanted to raise a family, and she devoted her time to her family. And said, well, Hollywood can wait. I think that's kind of admirable. Uh, So she raised some children and, uh, you know, wasn't on the scene for many years. Uh, And um, and she was, you know, just accepted back when she came back. Uh, By the way, she was also did some voice talent late in her career. Um, there was an animated series she did, Voices on the Legend of Korra, um, and uh, I guess that was a sequel to a hit show called Avatar, The Last Airbender. Um, let's see, what else? What would she, we have last seen her in? Mm, okay, uh, well, here we go. In, 2020, uh, in 2021... Eva Marie Saint appeared alongside Marissa Tomei in the podcast play series, The Pack Podcast, hmm. as part of the segment called The Bus Ride. 
So she's, uh, there you go. Just, uh, so many movies, um, that, uh, just, um, you know, we're, we're way above average. So there you go. Even Murray Saint. The, the nurse and, uh, pretty young thing in tonight's film that, uh, was, uh, leading James Garner's character to believe that they were wed while he was, uh, you know, experiencing one of his memory lapses. Well, her character was a bit complicated because as we come to find out, um, she was in a concentration camp and because only because she could speak very, very good English, Mm -hmm. she was, uh, taken out and and said you know we will give you food and treat you nicely if you do this thing for us Mm. and the thing they wanted her to do was to portray an american and pretend to be a nurse to the guy they were scamming to get information out of james garner so uh, a complicated uh character that we don't really know how to see until well into the movie uh, when when we we finally do have great sympathy for her, um, because uh, we understand why she's done the th- the things that she's done, um, and uh, a poignant end to the movie is Eva Marie Saint and James Garner are parting company at the very end of the movie after going through this whole thing, and they're destined for. Other places, even though for a time James Garner thought he was married to her, that mm-hmm. was part of the part of the fantasy that they implanted into his head, and they both really felt like they knew each other uh, af- after all of the mind games that went on. Um, but at the end of the movie, they, they know they're destined for other places and they both get into a car and they're facing one another through windows of the car and both cars are going in different places and they just have a, they give each other a look, which makes you realize both of them understand the depth of their relationship, even though none of it was real. Uh, it was all uh, an implant, a fake memory. But they're still connected, and then their cars go off, and their cars go in different directions. A very poignant end, um, and and she's got tears in her eyes, and it's just it's just a, a really nice ending to the movie. Yeah, and um, part of that that moment is that uh, she uh, conveys that her experience in the concentration camp made her very reserved and not being able to experience things like emotions. And of course, when they part, she's moved and she actually sheds tears, you said. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one thing about the character, Anna, the nurse, that um, she sort of uh, spills the bean. She lets in a little of herself is when James Garner's character notices something on her arm. Do you remember what he noticed, Toppy, that uh, led him to know well, her? I, I, I think it was the tattoo, right? It so, was. Yeah. In fact, apparently of uh, folks that watched the film 
uh, noticed that the tattoo that was on her arm was facing the wrong direction. Um, victims of the Holocaust and those who had survived the um, the concentration camps were found to have the tattoos facing the direction that a guard or someone military in the camp would have been able to read them. They didn't care if the person wearing it could read it the right way. So it was upside down, basically. So uh, another member of our cast that we're going to discuss now is uh, the character of Major Walter Gerber. Now, this is the the American doctor, the officer who was supposed to, um, you know, put James Garner's character. uh, What was his name? Jefferson Pike. Yeah. Because, you know, after this traumatic experience of passing out when he gets to to Portugal, where he's supposed to rendezvous his contact, he wakes up in this army hospital in the liberated Germany. So, um, yeah, they've they've colored his hair to make him look older. Um, They've um, they've given some kind of drug or a shot to his eyes to make them blurry mm-hmm. so that the only way he can see is to put on glasses that they've left there for him. So it's, he, he's sort of convinced that he's an older man when he wakes up because he can't read fine print anymore. And he's got gray, this gray temple. Mm-hmm. So he's rather convinced that he's had amnesia and or he's like a four or five or more years later in his life. Yeah, and before we finish tonight's discussion, uh, since this film is, you know, more than a few decades old, uh, we'll go ahead and talk about what was the, the one little thing that made him realize this was all a ruse. So, Major Walter Gerber was played by Rod Taylor. Now, Mr. Taylor, most famously, is known for his role in The Time Machine, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, Rod Taylor was born near Sydney in Australia. His father was a steel construction contractor and a commercial artist, and his mother was a children's author. Taylor began taking art classes in high school and continued in college. He decided to become an actor after seeing Sir Lawrence Olivier in Old Vic touring. Ah, yeah, that Old Vic. (laughs) I remember that. No, I don't. In a production of Richard III, so a Shakespeare play. Taylor made his film debut in Australia in a title called King of the Coral Sea in 1954. In the six years that would follow... He would have supporting roles in 12 films, so he kept busy. And in 1960, he was cast in The Time Machine, which, of course, was based on the famous H.G. Wells novel. And this was the first time that it was portrayed in film. Alongside Taylor was Mr. Alan Young, up and coming. And uh, he was the future star of TV's Mr. Ed. And as well as the lovely Yvette Mimou, who played Weena in The Time Machine. Now, Taylor starred in Alfred Hitchcock's horror thriller, The Birds, in 63, 
along with Tippi Hedren, Suzanne Plachette, believe it or not, Jessica Tandy. Hi, my my name's Suzanne Plachette. Hi. (laughs) Hi. And Bob Newhart's got a thing for me. Uh, And Jessica Tandy, Veronica Cartwright, playing a man whose town and home come under attack by menacing birds, if you didn't know. (laughs) No, there were no chickens in that movie. (laughs) Well, you know. Wait a minute. Chickens were mentioned. Oh, I, I, I I hear tell that um, the birds is one of your chickens' favorite movies. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taylor then starred with Jane Fonda in the romantic comedy Sunday in New York, which was also in '63. During the mid '60s, Taylor worked mostly for MGM, which is of course where he became acquainted with Mr. James Garner. His credits include in '63 the VIPs. And his first feature role um, is an Australian with Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, and Maggie Smith. They is the hunter for 20th Century Fox in 64. And with that had Glenn Ford and also Suzanne Plachette again. Hi, I'm Suzanne Plachette. I keep Hi. working because I love my voice. And 36 Hours, which was our film we were discussing tonight, was in 64. And in 65, he was in Young Cassidy with Julie Christie and Maggie Smith. 65 was The Liquidator with Jill St. John. In 65, also, he was in Do Not Disturb and a Doris J film in 66, The Glass Bottom Boat. Oh, people fell through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he kept busy. So he began to change his image toward the end of his decade to more tough guy roles. Actually, I think this is um, James Garner. So uh, I'm going to continue forward here. In the 70s, Taylor would continue to work in film. He would appear in 10 films in the 70s, including The Train Robbers in 73, which had John Wayne and Margaret and Ricardo Montalban. Oh. And then he was in all, also in 73. He was in a film with the future star of the Harry Potter films who played uh, Dumbledore, the, uh, the the head wizard and teacher, the headmaster. Um, that film in 73 was The Deadly Trackers. Now, by the mid to late 70s... With, with Richard Harris. Yes. Yeah. And by the mid to late 70s, Taylor would star in the NBC series, NBC series The Organ Trail. Damn, uh, I, I do not remember that at all. <laughs> we only had a couple of seasons, but uh, it was years before the popular computer game, which had a similar storyline, but, um, you know... Did, they, did everybody eat each other on that? Kind of like that. That was was a different trail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't trail mix either. Um, (laughs) Don't. In the mid to late 80s, Rod Taylor was cast in a recurring role on TV's 
Falcon Crest, you know, one of those shows where there was all those fights and things got thrown. And uh, I, I never watched that one. Oh, it was too late for Toppy. And, you know. <laughs> it was a Friday night. I could stay up late. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, makes that priceless. Uh, and uh, he would appear. Rod Taylor would appear in 30 episodes of that series. Now, in the 90s, Taylor continued working in film and television. He would appear in three films, one called Open Season. Uh, these are these are films that he was the star of, so the uh, supporting cast weren't as well known. Uh, another film was The Point of Betrayal. And then, um, well, one of his last films was something called Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Now, that title alone is enough to deserve a look up. But Taylor's last acting role was in the 2009 Quentin Tarantino. Yes, the guy who made Pulp Fiction film in Glorious Bastards, which starred Brad Pitt, of all people. Mm-hmm. Pretty man of the, uh, you know, the uh, Thelma and Louise fame that Toppy had a poster of over his bed. Uh, and uh, this was about an assassination attempt on Nazi leaders and Rod Taylor played Winston Churchill in this film. Now, at the time of his passing in 2015, at the age of 84, Taylor had 92 acting credits. Oh, well, you know what? I freaking missed everything he did later in life because it just never on my radar, whatever he was doing. And I, I honestly didn't know. He was acting as late as 2009, for instance, in Glorious Bastards. No clue. No clue he was in that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, I think we should mention that uh, 36 Hours was based on a short story written by Roald Dahl. Uh, he of the uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the... Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fame. Um, and it was a little short story about World War II. And um, and actually, I think, you know, Dahl himself was a pilot in the Royal Air Force uh, in World War II. So he kind of based some of what he was writing on that. And he was actually injured uh, in duty and was transferred to D.C., where he worked as an as an air attaché, and anyways, he uh, kind of based some of that whole story uh, that James Garner had on some of his own experiences, and uh, of course, our our, our director um, padded out that story into the whole thirty six hour movie. Um. I got to tell you, the only corny thing uh, I found, DJ, in 36 Hours was the Rod Taylor character towards the end. They kind of tried to make him sympathetic by this conceit that he had studied the real James Carner character for so many years that Oh, I feel like you're my brother. 
Ooh. And I, I, you know, I'm kind of sorry I did all these things to you now that we're at the end of the story and my doom is near. Uh, uh, I really kind of like you, uh, James Garner. And I just thought that was corny. It was the only corny part uh, that I found in the movie. It just, it just felt like, well, oh, come on. It was the only part in the movie where I said, oh, come on. I don't know how you felt about it. <laughs> well, I um I saw information that over the years James Garner had been interviewed about this movie, and he looked back and he said the the movie really didn't have a chance to be popular or successful because the formula for the film for the story was a little off because there was really no struggle. It waited to you know the last 15 minutes or so to come to any resolution and for the characters to you know um get themselves out of their situation so there wasn't really uh a struggle and you didn't have any sort of um time frame where the audience were on the edge of their seat waiting for what was happening next it's just a you know, turn the page and, oh, no, they've been lying to me and I've been a fool and let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> well, we got to wrap this up soon. But, DJ, how did James Garner's character, Jeff, finally figure out that he was being bamboozled? Oh, well, before he went on his little excursion, which got him trapped behind enemy lines yeah, and basically drugged. Uh-huh. He, he he. Somebody put a Mickey in his drink, and he passed out in some alleyway. Mm-hmm. But anyways, what what? How, go ahead. <laughs> so he was handling a map, and he ended up getting a paper cut. And despite the uh, fact that the Germans went to great extent and lengths to make sure everything was perfect. They overlooked the minor fact that he had a paper cut that hadn't healed in the six years, apparently, since, you know, he uh, went cuckoo. Yeah. <laughs> so so that that was uh, that's how he it suddenly hit him like, wait a minute. There's there's been no six years gone by. By the way, this the plot of this movie was lifted about 20,000 times on Mission Impossible. Don't you think? <laughs> Mission Impossible did the story in one way or another. Uh, now, Toppy, did you know that tonight's film has a Star Trek connection? Well, we mentioned Marion Hartley before, but what is it? Okay, so uh, when they've left the, the fake army hospital and are um, seeking cover in the, the wilderness... They come to a a church pastor's house, and this uh, kindly housekeeper has uh, suggested she's going to help them out, even though the uh, the man of the house had, was not there. She she was there, you know, just to take care of the place. Anyway, Celia Lovsky was the actress who played the housekeeper in the the wilderness cottage. The character's name is Elsa. Celia was like a I mean, she's kind of an old woman, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, she know, you know she was portraying an old woman. She okay, might okay. herself have only been, you know, forty or fifty or so. But 
uh, Celia Loves Key, in just a few short years after this film, would appear in the 1967 episode of Star Trek original series, A Mock Time, where she played the Vulcan dignitary Chip Howe, who was there to judge you. <laughs> Ow! All right. Okay. And, and another one in the beginning of the film, uh, James Gardner is at an English hospital and there is a uh, a short role that's played by none other than Star Trek's James Doohan, who himself was a war veteran. And uh, he would, of course, be in Star Trek as the uh, the chief engineer, Scotty. But he was a... Um, a, an employee at the army hospital in the beginning of 36 hours. So you're telling me there were two Star Trek. Connections. There were two. That doesn't often happen. Folks. <laughs> uh, every episode, no matter what movie or television show we're doing, we find a Star Trek connection. Well, let's wrap this up, DJ. Um, I, 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 the movie is a, a part of its time that it was made, but I I'd still recommend it. I thought I thought it was sufficiently um, suspenseful, and I I really got wrapped up in in how uh, how the main character was going to get out of this predicament. Uh, any any opinions you got? You know, I uh, I thought that they did a good job in the beginning of setting things up for him to wake up and uh, you know be amidst this this uh, imaginary world that uh, the war is over now and oh you know you could tell us all your secrets because we're friends. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that that was the plan, of course, but. Um, you know, they it, it did feel a little hokey because everything was a little too perfect. But I do think that the basis of the story was good. It just seemed to uh, take its time to to get to the point, and uh, they wrapped it up too quickly in the end. They just yeah, it was a little bit rushed. Way. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Uh, well, let's uh, move on to our snack tray. Um, selections which are movies that uh, we recommend you watch if you liked tonight's movie 36 hours DJ what do you got alrighty so uh, 36 hours actually is categorized as a thriller or a wartime movie also as a a conspiracy I forget what the term was that I used but anyways um, A a conspiracy thriller Conspiracy thriller. Yes, that's a, a new genre that we've uh, <laughs> here. So um, I'm going to be a little different because uh, unlike 36 Hours, the film that I'm going to recommend is not a serious film. However, it borrows from this concept. I am going to recommend an, a late 80s film. This is from 89, and it stars John Travolta mm. and uh, also has a star of 90s sitcom Ellen. Not the talk show, but when Ellen had a sitcom. And uh, his name's Ari, Go- Ari Gross, 
or gross. But uh, this is a film called The Experts from 1989, and it's about two New York City guys get jobs starting a nightclub in a small town. However, they don't know that small town is actually a disguise. It's a model town in the Soviet Union where they train spies to be Americans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I never saw that one. But uh, all right, good selection. Uh, I'm going to go uh, uh, more traditional. Um, the, the movie this most reminded me of uh, was, of course, The Manchurian Candidate from 1962, a movie that was made two years prior. And I think 36 Hours was kind of trying to be another Manchurian Candidate. But it didn't succeed. Manchurian Candidate is a superior movie. It's a um, psychological political thriller uh, directed and produced by John Frankenheimer. You guys know it. Uh, Frank Sinatra was in it. Angela Lansbury played a delightfully evil lady. And uh, so that's the movie I'm going to recommend. If you liked 36 Hours, you're probably going to like The Manchurian Candidate. And by the way, I guess it was remade with uh, Denzel Washington uh, quite some time later. uh, Jeepers, I mean, it's probably a freaking old movie by now. (laughs) To me, it feels like it just came out. Uh But it was the same title, Manchurian Candidate, with Denzel Washington, a remake. So that's what I recommend. Alrighty, Toppy. So, uh, you know, we've gotten out here to the lobby because uh, Gertie is uh, getting her coat on and she's getting ready to go home. I gotta night. go. I gotta go. All right. Uh, okay. Hang on. Well, that's what you get for having prunes this late, ma'am. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, Toppy, if you would uh, do that thing we do that uh, lets people know what's coming up next, grab that bag of coins from up on yes. the shelf. I got it. Here we go. There you go. Take this coin. We're going to put this in the machine. And out will come. And uh, I think I'll go ahead and open that up there, sir. All right. uh, Here we go. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Uh, Next time on Bad Day Medusa. It's an early noughties action comedy crime-fighting film. Starring the handsome star of then recent films Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve, by the way, and the Greek epic Troy. Who do you think is going to be in our movie, folks? Uh, why it's a uh, 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 a movie uh, called Mister and Mrs. Smith, starring Brad Pitt and Angelo- Angelina Jolie. I hear they were married at one time. Uh, so, yeah, our next movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's a, it's a bored married couple who's surprised to learn that they're both assassins hired <laughs> by competing agencies to kill each other. Yeah. Hmm. It's totally believable. <laughs> oh, that's next, that's next time. By the way, that's going to be March 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's yeah. a Friday and uh, we'll be doing it live again, folks. So, oh, and you know, Toppy, I know that you do enjoy a good uh, Brad <laughs> scene, and I will have you know that it's worth the price of admission because at one point 
they are duking things out in the kitchen oh. with some firearms. And, uh, well, they're wearing just their civvies. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Brad Pitt's wearing boxer shorts. I'd like to see something more fashionable. But right. you, you, you take what you can get, right? That's right. Um, all right. Uh, well, let me thank some people that were in the chat room tonight. We had our ever-faithful Tommy Hashbrowns, our pal, who's here uh, virtually every week. We got Lamont Cranston. Um, we had also... Um, holy cow! Now that they're gone, I can't think of their names. Oh, Tom and Terry. Tom and Terry, thank you. And we also had for a, a time uh, Matthew Berlingame. Thank you all for coming by and helping us out by being part of our little audience when we do a live show. Thank you very much. And a round of applause for our audience. Alrighty, Toppy. Well, it's time for us to, you know, get going off into the sunset ourselves here. So if you would uh, give us a little bit of a throwback. Um, what did that old couple say when it was time to say goodnight on the radio? Good night, Gracie. Good night. Blue blue. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to matineeminutia.com, click the YouTube icon for live video, enter Discord or chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. 